This is the Mormon Women Project at www.mormonwomen.com. Hey everyone, this is Meredith Nelson. So a few weeks ago we published on our blog an interview with Kristen Hodson, and we received so many requests to share the audio on our podcast that we're going to do so, with the disclaimer that it wasn't recorded as a podcast, so some of the audio is not ideal, and we did end up editing out some sections that were just inaudible. But you can go to our blog and read the edited transcript there. The interview is conducted by Nolly Haas, and since Kristen Hodson is a certified sex therapist, the interview does contain non-explicit discussion of sex and sexuality. A little bit about Kristen Hodson. She is the founder and executive director of The Healing Group and is a licensed clinical social worker and certified sex therapist. She specializes in maternal mental health and in healthy sexuality. In this interview, she discusses issues regarding sexuality that are unique to conservative religious cultures and on developing the confidence and skills we need to talk with our kids about intimacy. She talks about how we can better identify and support mothers who might be struggling with postpartum depression and anxiety, and fathers too, and the importance of seeking out Christ-like love and understanding in our relationships with those in the LGBTQ community. Finally, Kristen talks about her own career path and how she and her husband have sought to find balance and equity in their partnership. Without further ado, here are Nolly and Kristen. So how did you become interested in the field of psychotherapy and healthy sexuality? Because I see that you're a licensed clinical social worker, certified sex therapist. How did this become your calling? That's interesting um, because it really began with my own personal experience with therapy. And uh-huh. when I was a teenager, I I had, uh, my parents got divorced and thankfully they allowed me to go to therapy. And, and really it was through therapy where I was like, this is, I love this. And I love the results and the changes that are happening in my life. And so that's where it began but that I would say the seeds were planted at that point and it didn't really take root that that's what I wanted to do until I went to BYU Hawaii and um, they have a really incredible international social work program and that's really what where everything took root and I knew from there that I wanted to be uh, not not just a social worker but also a therapist and really help facilitate changes in people's lives. And so how did that, so tell us kind of how your education then progressed to then get to be able to do what you wanted to do. Yes. So with your bachelor's in social work, you're really limited in the kind of work you can do. You're not able to do any clinical work. It's more of a base a base degree to then jump into your master's degree, which then allows you to pursue clinical work, to work in a hospital. Social work's great because there's so many different directions you can go in, but it's that degree that allows you to springboard into all these other areas. And, and at that point, I, I, again, I still knew I wanted to be a therapist, but I didn't know what my specialization was. I had mm-hmm. no idea. And, and I really wanted to have a specialty. I wanted something that I could claim as mine and that I could dig my my feed in and just become passionate and knowledgeable, but it 
didn't really, I, I couldn't find it until I was a generalist for the first couple of years um, until I got pregnant. And mm-hmm. then uh, I have, so I've got my own reproductive history and so I experienced a lot of anxiety, a lot of anxiety and intrusive thoughts during my pregnancy and I didn't know what it was and being a new mom, I just was like, I guess this is what pregnancy is. I guess this is what it is. I guess this is normal. And it was really hard um, because all I had known about postpartum depression was what I had learned through the media and it really scared me. And my provider at the time wasn't really helpful either. Uh, and she had said, I, when I asked her about how, what signs do I watch for with postpartum depression? Mm-hmm. What are those signs? What do I need to watch for? And she, she didn't really give me answers. All she really said is, well, you can either take meds and treat the depression or you can pull on your boot, pull up your bootstraps and, and move forward. And I was like, well, I'm going to be that kind of mom. I'm going to pull up my bootstraps. And mm-hmm. that didn't work for me. And I quickly realized, I'm like, I am a therapist and I need help. And I can't, A, name what this is because I was never taught what this was in school. And B, yeah. I can't see any therapists that are naming or able to help me with what is going on. And so that's then when my, I feel like my, the first piece of my calling bubbled up um, was after my child and I had more experiences to realize this is a thing. And I live in Utah with the highest birth rate in the country. And how is there not more resources and support for women and families experiencing this? And so then, so that was my next question is then why did you decide to open the healing group? Was that the direct springboard of that? Yes. Yes, because I was working in another clinic at the time where I was a generalist practitioner. And there was one client in particular who came in and in hindsight, now I know that she was experiencing postpartum anxiety and OCD. But at the time, I didn't know what it, that, that that's what it was. And my supervisor didn't know that's what it was. So she really didn't get the help that she needed or deserved um, because this was, again, I wasn't pregnant. I hadn't gone through this. And so once I had my experiences, I, I went on maternity leave from the clinic that I was working at. And because of all my experiences, I'm like, I can't go back. I need to start. I need to, if it's not out there, I need to create my own thing. And I need Mm -hmm. to make this a resource available for women and families. So after maternity leave is when I started the healing group. And I, I kind of look back and I'm like, I was young. Like I was 28, a new mom, but felt very strongly that this needed to happen. And um, I have always had an entrepreneurial and business-minded spirit. So merging my love of clinical work with business was a really good fit. And so I just started by renting office space from a therapist that I knew and grew it from there. We were, we were a specialty slash generalist clinic. Again, we're still trying to, mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out the identity um, and the language. I still, it was really hard for me when people say, well, what do you do to explain postpartum depression while educating them on what it was and what it wasn't? And because at the time that we were the first clinic that was doing this and it just wasn't on the radar for anybody. And over time, what started to happen, and and this has always been kind of part of my clinical work, is when people were figuring out their reproductive path, whether they were 
um, able to get pregnant, whether they were pursuing adoption, whether they're experiencing um, infertility, all of these ways, sex, sex and sexuality was always a part of their story. And that would always come up and people were always mm-hmm. telling me their sexual stories. And that was the next piece that presented of everyone is telling you about their sexual experiences, which makes absolute sense in this world. And so I then started what would be considered a second master's degree and uh, went through an organization called ASEC to become a certified sex therapist and wrote a book called Real Intimacy to start opening up that door. And Mm -hmm. that piece just exploded, uh, exploded more than the perinatal piece and because I think people were and are so hungry to talk about healthy sexuality and to get information and to get answers and they want to be able to talk about it in their relationships and with their children and so when when we started to see what was happening we really then decided we want to be a specialty clinic we don't want to be a generalist we this is what we do and so we became we do maternal mental health, sexual health, and couples. And and that's really what the healing group does. I, I kind of think of the healing group a lot like my fourth child because it was uh-huh. three months after my firstborn. So I've raised my clinic and now all of my children together. And just like a child that the, the grows into their identity and initially what you think this child is going to be, keep changing all along their developmental stages. That's really been like the healing group is I have this initial idea of what that clinic would be. And it's changed and evolved over all these different developmental stages. And it's been like any child, my relationship and growth with the healing group has been um, complex, but I wouldn't (laughs) trade it for the world. And I, and I deeply love it. So let's go into the, the healthy sexuality piece first. Do you see specific issues? So you said there was this, this growth, this uh, hunger for it, people really responding to it. Do you see specific issues that Mormon women or Mormon couples face that might be unique? Yes. A big, big, big one is the lack of knowledge around anatomy and bodies. Uh, a lot of people come in and they are not aware of their their body, particularly women where they haven't fostered a connection around their sexual desire. They, I would say, and, and this could change as different generations keep growing up, but I would say yeah. uh, currently a lot of girls are very unfamiliar with their bodies. And so there's a lot of education just around how bodies work how pleasure works, all of these different things. That's that's a big piece. Uh, Another Mm -hmm. one would be sexual shame. Um, When you really have, I see a lot of women who develop identity around chastity Mm -hmm. and, and they develop this identity. And then when they get married, the transition into, well, now you can be sexual and it should be fun and you should love it. And the, the world is your oyster. That transition can be really difficult. Identity and worth has been wrapped around this one idea of being chased to now switching it. And so that's where you could get into a lot of sexual shame and feelings of guilt. And a lot of women all of a sudden being like, I had desire before I got married. And then once I got married, 
I am not interested, even though I know I should, I'm not, I don't feel desire like I once used to. And, and Laura Brotherson mm-hmm. calls it the good girl syndrome, feeling like I, I realize it's okay now that I'm married, but I feel really, really bad about what I'm doing sexually. It doesn't feel right. Uh, again, we look, when we look at development of sexuality over a lifespan, if you've spent your whole life developing this one way of thinking about your body, your sexuality, your desire, it's really hard to just switch because you have a ceremony that now says you can. Pornography will be another one that often comes into play and wanting to help couples start to look at what this means and 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 help both people because a lot of women don't get to talk about their sexuality or don't have the space to talk about their sexuality until they've been hurt. And then when mm-hmm. they've been hurt, now they're talking about their sexuality and exploring it. And so to start to shift that narrative of starting to develop their own sexual identity from a place of positivity instead of just in the shadow of a, a hurtful event. And then another thing that I call helping couples develop stewardship over their relationship. And mm-hmm. um, because a really common question that comes up all the time is, well, what's okay for us to do sexually and what's not okay? And yeah. again, when you're used to the rules being laid out for you of what you can and cannot do over the course of your life and really not starting to develop a sense of integrity and values and morals it's really easy to just keep wanting to know the the rules like and mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the LDS church doesn't provide the rules post marriage the mm-hmm. rules are what anything um, don't do anything that is coercive abusive or unnatural mm-hmm. that's it it's really difficult for couples to start to have to learn to have the conversations and develop that relationship with each other to decide what works for us, what doesn't work, what elevates our relationship, what enhances our connection, what brings us to feel more intimate with each other. And mm-hmm. that means we're going to talk about these things, which is a new skill, skill set, a new level of comfort that we haven't experienced before. So that's also really common is to help people to learn how to talk about these things to where they become the authority over the relationship. So I noticed that you were doing, you're working to change local legislation and policy with the Smart Kids Utah Parent Project. So what are parents often missing in teaching their kids about bodies and sexuality? I think the first thing that parents are missing is the the reality that none of us got this education when we were growing up. So we don't Mm -hmm. have the skills. So we don't Mm -hmm. have the comfort. And we also all have our own sexual stories that can get triggered. So that's the first piece. The second uh-huh. is fear, um, fear of if we talk about things more, our kids are going to become more curious, and now we're going to lead them down a path to become yeah. sexual long before we want them to, when none of the research supports that fear. The research supports that the more education you're giving your children, the more you're having these talks across an entire lifespan, the longer kids are delaying uh, sexual intercourse which is really, that's strong data. And so the more that we're front loading and we're moving away from having the talk, like there's this 
idea that when my kids turn eight and they're baptized, they are ready to have the talk. Along with Smart Kids Utah, which is a political, it's a parent-led political group to to further comprehensive sex education, which that's a whole other conversation because that can be very misunderstood of what that is and is not. Simultaneously, I'm doing a lot of presentations at the ward and stake level to help parents develop skills to talk to their kids about sex. So both of these things are going on to encourage parents to start making conversations about sexual health and sexuality from the moment kids are born and having a million one-minute conversations across the lifespan, um, just like that we are doing with reading and with math. Kids are learning mm-hmm. approximately 1,800 hours of reading and math during their time in school because those things are they're building blocks, and you need yeah. to have repetitive learning and you learn more complex you learn more complex skills and understanding with reading and math because you keep building on it. With sexuality, people are getting 17.2 hours of education between kindergarten and 12th grade, which is less, it's about an hour a year. That's just not nearly enough. And so we we look around and kind of wonder why, why are we having all these problems around sexuality when we're not spending the time to teach and navigate and we're not even talking, you go back to the first strength of youth and it's not just talking about sexuality, we have a whole section for strength of youth around dating and love and mm-hmm. relationships. Love is oftentimes, we hope, coming before a sexual experience. And so we also mm-hmm. need to be talking about boundaries and consent and the indicators of a healthy relationship regularly as well. And that can start the moment kids are born. So you said there's a lot of misunderstanding about what you guys are working for as far as the legislation, what's the misconception versus the reality? Yes, so the misconception is that comprehensive sex education is designed to sexualize our children as early as second grade or kindergarten, and that if comprehensive sex education is passed in Utah, we're turning over our sexual health education to the state and to teachers and that's it. Our kids are going to be exposed to material that isn't going to be in line with our values and Mm -hmm. we don't know what they're going to be taught. Sex education isn't teaching kids values. It's giving them information so that families can then overlay their values with that information. But right now, Uh sex education is seen not as a health issue, but as a moral issue. And as long as we're doing it as a moral issue and not a health issue, that's going to be really tricky. So we're, we're still stuck and um, I wouldn't be advocating. I, I am a, a mother and wouldn't be advocating for something that I would view that would be harming my child. There's just a lot of fear around what that would look like if we had sex education in our schools. Do you work with, much with LGBT issues? The LGBT and Mormon population is where my heart is so much. I do a lot of that work. This is becoming a topic that is touching many, many people in the church. How do people work with love and compassion and understanding towards this issue that they may not understand or have experience with? 
I think that's been one of the greatest challenges of my faith are the LGBT issues and our current approach within the church towards the LGBT population because these are the clients that I work with. I don't have big answers for the how other than yeah. to seek out Christ-like love and personal revelation and focusing our our hearts more on how do I love and serve and embrace every single person. We believe every child is a child of God. I work with a lot of people that are in mixed orientation marriages and those that, again, are LGBT and they love they love the gospel and they acknowledge who they are. And, and it's excruciatingly painful in our current, I, I guess, our the way things currently are to feel like they have to choose between things that they feel religiously oriented as a Mormon and sexually oriented and that they didn't, it's who they are. That it's, it's, I don't have an answer. I feel like I'm, this issue is so raw for my heart. It is so raw for my heart that it's boiling down to love and not determining if we can love someone or not someone because of their orientation or how they're choosing to live their life, that we need to love everybody and allow people to have their own spiritual journey, their own way of living, instead of feeling like we've got the answers and we can sit comfortably and look at everyone else because we've got it figured out. I wish I could share the hearts of all the people that I work with and have people listen to them and their struggle and their heartache. Because it, it does when you have someone that's beyond just a letter related to LGBT to this is my dear friend or my dear sister and knowing their heart, it's really hard to then have these clear cut and dry answers around this mm-hmm. issue. Tell me about your work with postpartum depression. Um, I was made aware that you've done okay. some awareness campaigns. So what what does your work with that look like? So we do, the, I mean, the healing group, again, does a lot to raise community awareness and to reduce the stigma around uh, pregnancy and postpartum mood and anxiety disorder that one in seven women are most likely going to experience symptoms of a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder, and 10% of men will. Um, and wow. so giving permission to have people start to be like, oh, I don't feel like myself and yeah. um, and have dads be able to say, I don't feel like myself and it can present differently in men. But um, I did a podcast with my husband talking about his experience with postpartum depression with our second child. And that can be even, there can be even more stigma attached for men because we don't, we really don't talk about that. But for women to not view it as I, I'm, I'm either a good mom or I have postpartum depression. A lot of women will feel like they have, they'll ignore their symptoms because they don't want to be quote unquote that mom. I was there. I didn't want to be that mom. I, I initially viewed it as a weakness or that something was rather than this is happening and a really common experience for a lot of parents. And mm-hmm. so a lot of it is doing education and reducing stigma. 
the healing group really comes from a place of linking arms and abundance and trying to work with others in the community to cast as wide of net as possible so that people will reach out for help and get support because if people are reaching out and getting the support they need, they typically get better quick and fast and they don't feel so alone and isolated, which is one of the worst things that you can start to feel when you're already feeling mm -hmm. down and, and overwhelmed. Do you see anything specific to the Mormon community regarding statements yes. about mental health? There's this idea of self-reliance and that we're surrounded by a variety of women that seem to be doing it, not only doing it, but doing well and thriving. And then you can get lost in um, Instagram and Pinterest and see just pictures of families and mothers that always have the smiling face and their kids are all put together and and it can just cause you to be like, what is wrong with me? And I, mm -hmm. and I don't want to reach out. And the other piece that's interesting for within Mormonism is I will go to these message boards where uh, they're geared specifically for people that have had babies and they're pregnant or postpartum period. And they'll start to say, I'm not okay. And people are really hesitant to say, you should, you should seek out a counselor or go to a support group. It's almost like there's this belief of do everything you can before, before having to finally go to counseling instead of, and they're, they're trying to find these really natural interventions. Counseling and talking is one of the most natural things you can do, but there seems to be this belief that that's the last ditch effort after mm -hmm. you've tried everything and the praying. Yeah. And the religious piece, if you're experiencing symptoms of anxiety and OCD, you can start to have these religious ruminations, become obsessive about religious rituals such as praying and doing all of these things, and it can exacerbate it. And you can start to wonder, why am I going through this? And I can't feel the spirit, and I can't feel God. And so there's that stigma and these ideas that we see all these women around us doing it, whether that's true or not, mm -hmm. doesn't matter because if in the, our mind, that's the story we're telling ourselves and then mm -hmm. we're comparing it against ourselves, uh, then you just feel terrible. But then there's the other piece of, we instead of thinking of women in that postpartum year, there's also a, just uh, when I had my first baby, um, it, again, it was my first baby, and I was in the young women's, and my young, they, my, the, the young women leaders that I served with, they were so nice, and I don't think they had any ill intent with saying these things to me, but they were would say, so how long do you think it'll be till you come back after you have a baby? Because some of us think it's going to take you about three months, mm -hmm. and I, that made me feel really bad because their, their belief was that I couldn't get it together sooner than that to come back. And mm -hmm. um, because there were other people, other women that would come back to their callings in church two, two weeks in or three weeks in. And, and mm -hmm. I remember saying, I don't know when I'm coming back. I don't, I've never been a mom. I don't, I have no idea, but feeling this pressure to, to have it look a certain way and needing support beyond the week of milk that I needed mm -hmm. someone to come check on me at six weeks and I needed someone to come check on me at three months because 
symptoms of postpartum depression are usually showing up three to six to nine months later. And so this belief that you're out, you're out of the woods after the first four weeks is not true. That's the baby mm-hmm. blue. Anything beyond those first two weeks is something different. So I, think, I just think there's a lot of pressure around what motherhood is supposed to look like, what it means to be a good mother and what that looks like, what it means mm-hmm. if you're thriving. And because there's such worth around your identity as a mother, we can put a lot of pressure to do it perfectly and do it well without help because everyone else is around us is doing that as well. Women, we can we can largely also be unsupportive of each other because we've all had to do this ourselves. So it's, it's kind mm-hmm. of a, well, pull it up, figure it out. And mm-hmm. I think as a culture, we can really benefit from adjusting a lot of that. So what are we lacking in our understanding of it in general? What can we look for? Um, you know, a lot of people will have this idea that the mom who is experiencing postpartum depression is the mom that's just crying all the time that can't get herself out of bed. Mm-hmm. And those, a lot of times when I have a new client that's coming in and they are really well put together, their hair is done up, their clothes are just perfect. I oftentimes will get more worried about that woman mm-hmm. than the one that presents with potentially milk stains on her shirt and her hair disheveled. Mm-hmm. And because the woman that's holding herself together, there's a lot Oftentimes it's behind the scenes. And so I think the first thing would be to see this as a relevant women's issue. If 50% of the population are women and we're Mm -hmm. putting a large emphasis in both the proclamation to the family and within our church culture on motherhood, I think we could do a much better job of educating around not just, again, not just supporting mothers or women when they're sick, but improving on partnering and supporting that mother and and creating discussion around how do we support each other and utilize the already built-in networks within the church mm-hmm. so that we're not just reaching out to you when you're not doing well. And when you're not doing well, let's all understand what that looks like. Let's do mm-hmm. education on what is postpartum depression and what it is not because a lot like sexuality, most of us are educated on what that is through the media and the stories that make it to the media are the, some of the worst cases. And how do you minister to a mother who might be struggling? How do you open that conversation up so that they don't feel judged or ashamed? How do we start to minister in new ways to these mothers? How do we take pressure off of new mothers to have to do it all and find Mm -hmm. potential job sharing or calling sharing or just doing different to reimagine and to not just have changing tables in the women's bathrooms. Again, so that there could be more of a view of partnering rather than this is all yours mm-hmm. as a mother. I think there's a lot of ways we could really support women proactively as well as if they're not doing well after they've had a baby. So very, very briefly, what are signs like? Just off the top of my head, because 
I mean, it's going to be mostly women who read this so that if they could say, oh, maybe I do need to open a cup of, up a conversation, what mm -hmm. are the things that are red flags? Um, red flags would be to start isolating. Um, a common, one of the most common symptoms actually is anger. When you are having a really angry response to something that you wouldn't typically get so angry about, watching, watching someone, we can think of stress and anxiety, or when we think of OCD as someone that's checking the locks and oftentimes people, that's not how it presents, they just have scary intrusive thoughts. So women won't leave their homes, they won't want to go to the swimming pool because they're worried something's going to happen to their baby. So it's, it's the isolating, it's the tears, it's looking like everything is just perfectly together. And I would just say learning how to check in regularly as a friend and as a sister and as a administering to each other. Um, but the, the, sometimes it's not obvious, but if you have a relationship where someone can ask you how it's going and if you're already checking in with them regularly, then it might be on that fifth time when you're like, how are you doing? They might say, I'm not doing as well as I thought um, because there's trust. So I, I guess I would say ask them too how they're, they're sleeping um, because sleep, if women, that's another thing we can really normalize with motherhood is like none of us get sleep. But if, yeah. if a mom is starting to get, it's getting less than four hour chunk over a long period of time, that will take a toll. And and so learning, like when we go over and we administer someone, taking our washcloth and just wiping their counter off for them and, and not expecting them to entertain us, but supporting them. Of, can I hold your baby while you go take a shower or go sit in a bath for 20 minutes? Or have you mm -hmm. had a chance to brush your teeth? I mean, doing all of these things when you have the relationship, and it, it really makes a difference in changing the belief that we just have to endure and gut through motherhood and that we can really help each other out through this experience of motherhood. You also speak to women's groups on how to find balance and joy in everyday living. Where do imbalances often happen for women and what advice do you give? I would say imbalances often come in partnering. Um, that in partnering? Uh -huh. In partnering and being willing to do a lot of volunteer work rather than uh -huh. paid work. And so we can actually not identify as quote unquote working mothers, and we are working uh -huh. sometimes more than full time managing uh -huh. all of the different things in our home and the volunteer efforts that we're pursuing. And so that's where I see the imbalance often is. In marriages, um, women often taking on more of their more of the workload at home, 24/7, um, mm -hmm. and then again in their in their volunteer roles. And so, uh, I really love the poll on the work of Julie Hanks. She's done mm -hmm. a great yeah, job. Yeah. yeah, she she's done and is doing a great job to help people, both men and women, see how they can bring more balance into their partnership so that they're both able to pursue their passions and their dreams and fulfill their parental responsibilities um, and that that doesn't have to be a gender thing and that we can fulfill what being a mother and a father looks like beyond domestic duties around the home. 
Um, mm-hmm. So we do a lot of discussions around that, and we do a lot of discussions of learning how to just say no and to say yes with intention and, mm-hmm. and sitting with that uncomfortable feeling uh, and not having to then explain it or justify it or apologize for it. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of work around that. So how do you balance your time with teaching, counseling, speaking, family, everything? Good question. And I will be fully transparent that I am always trying to, to get myself back into balance and have to accept the times when I'm out of balance. This last year, I've been really out of balance, it, it, almost to a point where it was taking a large toll on my health. And one of the major goals my husband and I have while we're here in Costa Rica is to further improve our partnering um, because he recognizes that and has recognized for a long time that we both have passions in areas where we feel called and that I've been able to learn both the domestic and my professional world and that he has not done as good a job of being involved in the domestic world. So mm-hmm. we are starting to come up with systems of meal planning so he and I both know what dinners coming down the pipeline so that he can just get it started or I can get it yeah. started and and really starting to divide what can be called invisible labor and to name what that mm-hmm. is that, that he and I both carry. So it, for me, it's, it's, it may be, I think, it's, I think the idea of living in balance and arriving there is inaccurate. I think mm-hmm. working toward balance and being able to recognize when you're out of balance and where you're out of balance is is more what we should be shooting for instead of arriving at balance. And I don't know if that exists. I, I oftentimes feel mm-hmm. more like I'm juggling. I'm juggling, yeah. and at times I have too many balls up in the air, and I need to get some. I need to get some of the balls out. And so I'm always. I'm always visiting and revisiting and trying to get back into balance and juggling less. What prompted your move to Costa Rica? Uh, it was my husband, actually. We had gotten to a point where it had just gotten to be unmanageable, but with each kid, it's not like we were clearing out stuff from our plates. We had the same amount of obligations and responsibilities on our plates and then we would just keep adding a kid and they had things they were involved in and it just multiplied and multiplied and and it really was starting to take a toll on my health. I had some mm-hmm. new medical conditions arise and we felt like as a family we were attending more to our commitments than to each other and mm-hmm. my husband was just watching this and he was watching our oldest only get older and feel like time is just passing us by and we're not being intentional with it. We're just kind of going with the flow. And I, um, especially being in Salt Lake with my area of specialization, I was being asked to do more and more and speak more. And mm-hmm. I wasn't doing a good job of being more discerning about where I was donating my time and what I was being involved mm-hmm. in. So we were just crumbling. So our, our goal was come out here to reset, to bond as a family, to make some memories. And the word that we are using while we're out here is reimagine. Let's reimagine the way that we can do this life instead of just doing what we've seen everyone else do. Let's reimagine and see what bubbles up and how we can 
enjoy and embrace life differently than how we've been doing it. Or did you worry that it would affect your work? Like, oh, well, if I'm not there, I won't be able to be on Facebook. Oh, you like, no, I'm able to sit back totally. and then only choose the things I want to do and talk to people I want to talk to. That's going to, I think that will ultimately be the unforeseen gift in it all. But it was really sad and hard for me to untangle. I had to just really trust um, whenever God needs to communicate with me and this has happened this is god's pattern with me he plucks me up out of where i'm holding and takes me somewhere by the feet always um, <laughs> he's he florida he's moved me to hawaii he's moved me to i had a huge spiritual when i went to lake powell a couple years ago and so one when, when this came up i was like oh it's time for god to teach me some things and i have why can't i just do this in my environment but that seems to be how it goes down. I, I felt like bold moves, like moving everything, don't ever come at convenient times. And so I was curious just enough to be like, why is this coming up now when it couldn't be the worst time? Maybe it's a better time beyond what I can see with my own eyes. And I'm curious just enough to see what's gonna come out on the other side. How did yeah. your faith influence your work? Well, I do want to speak briefly about Soraya's faith. So I wrote a primary song a year ago called Soraya's Faith that goes in conjunction no. to Nephi's Courage. I was the primary chorister for uh -huh. six years. And when I was first called in my first word to be it, I honestly, I laughed. Cause I was like, you know, I can't read music, right? And <laughs> the... The guy, the bishopric member was like, well, I'm not calling you for your ability to read music. I'm calling you for your enthusiasm. It's like, I've got that. I can totally do that. <laughs> Over the course of the, that was my first word. And then in the second word that I was, that I in now, they called me to do it again. And I, I continue to be very frustrated and more, more than frustrated, heartbroken that all of these little kids are not getting to learn about and sing about strong women in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard for me every week to just look at all these little faces and to not have, this is one great place where my work and flow, my faith and work kind of were in line because I knew the messages that were being internalized and internalized and you can't be what you can't see. And so I look at both these boys and girls and be like, hearing about any women and invisible yeah. women and I came home one day after leading music and was just so frustrated and started to read about Sariah and all of a sudden just words came and didn't really think anything of it and then it was about six months later I was pinged spiritually to be like what are you going to do with what I gave you and I was like I have no idea I don't know what this is and I took to Facebook and I posted that, hey, I've got a song potentially called Try of Faith. Here's what I'm thinking. And a, a musician named Monica Scott was like, I think I'm interested. Again, I have no idea because I'm not in the music world and I can't read music. And she had made a pro, like she had this thing, I'm not taking on any more projects. And if I don't get inspiration for the song in the next, 24 hours because she was getting ready to move. I'm not going to do it. And she was mm -hmm. 
picking up from school and all the music downloaded in her head. And wow. within, I mean, we had a song and it was written and every, every single thing that fell into place. And again, we're managing all these things and we had no room to write a primary song and it mm-hmm. all fell into place. It's like the window opened up and then it closed and we have a song and I included the YouTube link to it. Um, and then my primary saying story of faith in our primary program mm-hmm. that year. And it's been sung in a lot of primary programs and translated into different languages. And that was a wow. really cool experience. Um, and a big personal, I didn't ever imagine it would be like that. It was more of a, I just want my, if I have nothing more to write something for my own kids. But it's been a yeah. really, that was a big thing in my life. I, I genuinely feel like I have a have a strong testimony of my heavenly parents and that they want us to have happy and fulfilling relationships and what that can look like can be messy at times, but my faith allows me to sit in the mess with people and it also allows me to hold space for them to own their story and to claim their narrative and mm-hmm. to be supportive in their their journey and to have the big picture in mind that we are down here for a lifetime and that learning is over a lifetime. And so with my work, I think it, my faith has allowed me to not have an agenda that's bigger for the person than their own agenda and what is mm-hmm. for their plan. And that's been really helpful to feel like there's a bigger purpose and plan for everybody going on and that I get to be a part of their journey along the way Uh, and also feeling like healthy relationships and relationships are at the core of our gospel and wanting to have people help people have happier and healthier relationships deeply matters to me and to feel like sexuality is by divine design because it's are it's something that we are going to have to work at with our spouse over a lifetime because you never arrive that you might figure out your sexual relationship in your 20s and then you have your first baby and then it's got to change again and then you have a few more babies and then you hit 40 and your body's not functioning in the same way so you have to figure it out again and it causes us to continue if we all will take up the opportunity to turn toward each other and continue to develop our relationship with ourselves our spouses and God, our whole life. So it's something that I find really fulfilling and purposeful in the big scheme of things. If you enjoy this podcast and the hundreds of interviews with modern Mormon women in our online library, please share with your friends and consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.mormonwomen.com to help us fund interview transcription and website support.